Mark chapter 15 from verse 42 onwards. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. This is the word of God. Thanks, Josh, for reading. Do keep that open. It's a strange ending, isn't it? It's almost a bit of a damp squib of an ending to a book. Certainly not very Eastery. Where's the joy? We kind of expect joy and hallelujahs, don't we? On Easter Day, Jesus is risen. Where's the renewed confidence? Where's Jesus, actually? Because although uh, Mark mentions the promise that Jesus would appear, unlike the other gospel writers, he doesn't include any account of Jesus actually appearing to the disciples. It's almost as if the, the angel gives these, those women that, the Easter greeting. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. And all the women can manage in response is, oh, and that's it. And we kind of expect a bit more than just that. I mean, you can understand why people have felt there ought to be a mo- bit more than just that and have tried adding a, a, a more suitable ending to Mark's gospel. And we've got those bits in italics you'll see in our Bibles. You look at the end of it. Verse 19, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. And you think, well, that's more like it. That's a much more satisfying ending. But it's clear, it seems, that that was added later. Mark didn't write that. Some people think that maybe Mark's ending got lost, that the last page of his book somehow fell out and uh, was lost, detached. But I think there's good reason to think that Mark deliberately ended his gospel the way he did, verse 8. And certainly, 
in the providence of God, that is what has been preserved for us. And I think this rather strange ending to Mark's gospel helps us see Easter in fresh light. I hope it will do that for us, that we will see what Mark wants us to see, not just what we're expecting to see from an Easter reading. Let me pray that that might be so. Father, we need you to open our eyes to see what we should see. And ask that you'd do that now, that you'd speak through your word. Help us to see what Mark wants us to see. Help us to see the Lord Jesus. Help us to see more of the significance of his resurrection. All that means for us today. So speak to us, please, for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to look at the three main characters that Mark describes in that reading. The women, Joseph, and the angel. Okay, so first, the women. Throughout the the final bit, final verses of the gospel, Mark keeps turning our attention to these women. Verse 40, if you look up, you'll see they were there at the crucifixion, watching from a distance. They were there at Jesus' burial. Verse 47, seeing where the body was laid. And they're first the tomb by that Sunday morning. They're rather surprising witnesses, you may know, because given that in those days, a woman's testimony was deemed worthless. So if Mark is uh, wanting to sort of make his story more believable, well, rather odd that he should have made that bit up. And Mark I think has made it up, and he deliberately wants to give these women prominence. He names them. He honors them. You see verse 41, he says in Galilee, these women had followed Jesus and cared for his needs. Many other women who'd come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. He wants us to notice them. He wants us to honor their faithful, loving devotion to the Lord Jesus. Actually, some of us, we've been looking through Mark's gospel over the last number of months, and some of us here may remember the story Mark tells just at the beginning of his passion account of another woman and uh, her, what Jesus says is, beautiful act as she broke a pint of perfume and poured it over Jesus. And Mark, in a way, has sandwiched his account of the final hours and the death of Jesus, beginning with that story of a woman anointing his body for burial, is how Jesus interprets it, rather prematurely, because he wasn't yet dead, and then ending his account, his passion narrative, with these women hoping to anoint the corpse, and this time they're too late, the body has gone. But in both, Mark shows us these women's devotion to Jesus. The male disciples, all scarpered. But these women were there at his death, at his burial, and that first Easter morning, at first light, trying to show Jesus one final act of loving service. But what's striking, to me at least, is the emotion that these women bring to the story. Not really the emotions we associate with Easter. We expect joy. We expect a hallelujah. But these women come 
with questions and uncertainty. Verse 3, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And then they see an angel and we're told they're alarmed. Verse 5, and when the angel explains to them that Jesus is risen, of verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Not the kind of emotions we're expecting. It's a very different note that Mark sounds than we expect to hear on Easter morning. Now we'll see that their response is not wholly good, but nor is it wholly bad. In fact, I think it's meant to be instructive for us. There's something in their response to the news that Jesus is risen in a sense, should be ours. We should learn from them. Certainly, Jesus' resurrection is grounds for joy and confidence and hope. But I think, in a sense, Mark would say it should also make us tremble. Mark tells us at the end of verse 8, they were afraid. And we might ask, what were they afraid of? I think it was fear of the Jewish authorities or, or fear of bringing the news to the disciples and being thought stupid. It's not the kind of fear that, that stops us from telling people about Jesus. I think their fear was the same kind of fear the disciples had felt, if you remember, in that storm, in a boat with Jesus. The storm was so fierce, they thought they were, they were going to drown. They'd woken Jesus up. And he'd stood up and said to the wind and the waves, be still. And immediately it was calm. And we're told the disciples' reaction was not, phew, thank you, Jesus. We're told they were terrified. The same reaction that people had when they saw a man who'd had demons cast out of him into a herd of pigs. And they found the man now sitting, dressed and in his right mind. And again, their reaction was not, wow, did you do that, Jesus? Their reaction was to be afraid. It's the reaction of Peter when he saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, dazzling white, his glory for a moment revealed to him and the other disciples who were with him. And we're told their reaction was that they were so frightened and fear. The fact that the women were alarmed when they saw an angel, that's not really a surprise. That's the normal reaction to seeing an angel. If we'd seen an angel, not least early hours of the morning in a graveyard, I think we'd be pretty freaked out, wouldn't we? Alarmed would be the least of it. They were alarmed when they saw the angel. But when they're told that Jesus is risen... Mark says they trembled, they're bewildered, they fled, afraid. I think it's rather interesting. Why should the news that Jesus is risen produce that reaction? I think we're rather too quick to criticize the women. Maybe they saw more of the significance of the empty tomb than we do. Mark would say to us, it is properly an awe-inspiring event. 
It's a truth of massive, massive significance. Maybe it's good for us to remember that what we're celebrating today is not just chocolate and everything else. It is something truly awesome. It should astonish us as well as delight us. In a sense, if the empty tomb doesn't leave us trembling and bewildered, maybe we haven't fully realized the massive significance of what happened. It was the beginning of a new creation, beginning of the end. I think we should learn from the women's reaction of fear. It wasn't, though, wholly good. They'd been told to go and tell the disciples, and yet what we read is they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Clearly, they weren't silent for long. They did tell the disciples eventually. The other Gospels tell us that. But initially, they were silent. And I think we do understand that silence was wrong. And the reason Mark tells us that, I think, is to provide a contrast with our second character, which is Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. As we've looked at Mark over the last number of months, we've seen he loves a sandwich, a a literary sandwich. He often frames a story before and after with something that's linked. He'll use contrast to try and highlight something that he wants us to notice and to see, and I think he does that here. Joseph is framed by the mention of these women. And there's a contrast, I think, that he wants us to see. Look back, chapter 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. The women, Marx presented them in lots of ways as exemplary disciples, much more so than the blokes. So we're rather surprised, end of chapter 16, by their silence, which is driven by fear. And in contrast, Joseph's lack of fear, his boldness in speaking to to Pilate, is equally, I think, surprising. He was one of the Sanhedrin. Even if he'd uh, abstained or absented himself, at the trial, he, in a sense, shared responsibility for Jesus' death. Actually, John tells us he was a secret disciple. Fear, fear, up to this point, had caused him to keep quiet instead of speaking up about his faith. But now, suddenly, boldly, boldly, he goes to Pilate. He nails his colors to the mast. Even if It's going to ruin his reputation, maybe endanger himself in some way. He does it. The people Mark was, first of all, writing for, his first readers were Christians in Rome. They'd have known all about fear of Roman authority that Pilate represents. They knew how that fear might well keep them from speaking up about their faith. The emperor at the time... Mark writes, was Nero. He'd soon be throwing Christians to the lions. He'd be tying them to stakes, dipped in oil, setting fire to them to be torches in his garden. Joseph would have been a very striking example 
to Mark's first readers, a striking example to us of boldness. And we might think, well, surely it's the empty tomb. It's the truth of Jesus' resurrection that at last gives us boldness to speak up about Christ and about our faith. But I think actually Mark would say it's the cross more than anything else that uh, makes us bold as we should do. Just as signs and wonders don't produce faith, it's the cross. That's where the centurion, as he watched Jesus died, finally said, surely this man is son of God. It's the cross that produces faith. It's the cross that inspires boldness to live out our faith, to speak. Yes, Jesus is risen, and we should tell the world. That's, I suppose, the implication of the angel's words to the women. It's it's truth to be shared. But when we feel fearful, I think it's especially the cross that should encourage us and inspire us. Is that the missionary, 19th century missionary, C.T. Studd, once famously said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. It's the cross. To be like Joseph, it's the cross that gives us courage to speak of him. I think the reason Mark, one reason anyway, that Mark keeps his account of Easter Sunday so brief is that he doesn't want us to sort of shift our focus from the cross. That's especially where he wants us to fix our gaze. So we can learn from the, from the women. We can learn from Joseph. But the key character in this little passage, I think, is the angel. It's our third character. The angel speaks as a, as a messenger from God. He's, uh, he's bringing divine revelation. So we need to pay attention to what the angel says. If we want to know what to learn from the empty tomb, I take it especially we need to listen to what the angel tells us. So look at verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I said, I I think Mark means to keep our focus, especially on Good Friday on the cross. But at the same time, he does want to bathe the cross with Easter light. And the angel's words are there to remind us that the crucified one is the risen one. The angel doesn't say to these women who'd come to anoint Jesus's uh, body, oh, don't worry about that bloody corpse. You can forget about the crucifixion. Think about something much, much nicer. He's alive! He's alive! You can forget about his death. No, the angel says, the one who died is risen. Look, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. The crucified one is the risen one. Physically 
raised from the dead. And Mark's not wandering there into sort of myth and legend when he speaks of physical resurrection. He reports Good Friday, the events of Good Friday, as something real, as something that happened. Jesus was crucified. In the same way, the empty tomb is no less real. The resurrection is no less something that happened. It's not just a nice comforting idea to soothe these women's grief. Look, says the angel, see the place where they laid him. Just as the disciples, we're told in other Gospels, were to be told, see the holes in Jesus' hands. He says, put your finger in here. Touch me. See, I'm not a ghost. For some here, maybe this morning, the angel's words are especially, in a sense, what you need to hear. Look. Mark doesn't actually set out the evidence for the resurrection the way the other gospel writers do much more. But he's very clear, nevertheless, belief in the resurrection is based on evidence. See the place where they laid him, the angel says. For me, and I'm sure for many of us, it was checking out the evidence for the resurrection that especially persuaded me of the truth of Jesus. And if you're not persuaded yet, can I say to you, look, look, check it out by the exits. We've got uh, a book you could take away. I'd love you to take it away. Is Easter Unbelievable? Nice short read. I'd love you to, to look. See for yourselves if the evidence stacks up. He's risen. He's risen, but so what? Well, the angel goes on to say, go. Tell his disciples and Peter. And the word order there, I think, is significant. If the angel had said, tell Peter and the disciples, we'd think Peter's mentioned first just because he's the, the leader of the disciples. But the fact that the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter, rather implies he's singled out for rather a different reason. Of course, Mark has told us about Peter, how he denied Jesus, disowned him. Last time we've seen Peter, end of chapter 14, Peter is weeping at his dismal failure to stand up for Jesus. Perhaps he felt such a dismal failure that he thought Jesus would surely now disown me. He's disqualified, surely, from being a disciple. Well, no. The angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter. The angel brings a, a wonderful word of grace and a word of hope. He goes on, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That he's going ahead implies Jesus is still leading, still leading you. To go to Galilee, well, that's where it all began. That's where Jesus had, had first taught them and trained them. To go there suggests a, a new beginning. And there they would see him. Not just that Jesus would appear to them, though we know that he did. They would see him. And I think for Mark, that's a significant idea. At last, their eyes would be opened. They'd fully understand who he is 
and all that he'd done. We know from elsewhere in the 40 days before Jesus ascended into heaven, he did appear to them and taught them. And they saw. Their eyes were opened. Like the women, the disciples' eyes at this moment weren't fully open. They didn't fully see. But there's the promise that the risen Christ would meet them and lead them and teach them. So word of grace, word of hope. Can I say, I think it's a word of grace and hope to us too. Maybe we're conscious that like Peter, we have failed. Maybe it's a long time since you were last in church. And you think, I, I, I'm not sure what Jesus would have to say to me anymore. Maybe it's just in recent days. We know we've failed. We are rubbish disciples. Instead of Joseph's boldness in speaking to Pilate, we've been much more like Peter, struck dumb by a slave girl. In a whole host of ways, we know we are failures as disciples. And Easter brings wonderfully a message of grace. The risen Jesus doesn't give up on failures. He died for them. He died for me. He died for you. The risen Jesus welcomes sinners. And he goes before us too now. He leads us still. Though we're at times, like the women, bewildered. There's still much that we don't fully understand. But I think this word of hope applies to us. He will help us see. He will, by his Spirit, help us to understand more and more. And one day, one day, we will see him. Not in this life, but the end is near. Jesus is risen. We will see Jesus soon, Easter assures us. So go and tell. Go and tell, the angel says. And the women's initial failure to do that jars, doesn't it? It's a, what? That's a strange way to end. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And we think, how could they? But doesn't that then immediately goad us to speak to? Perhaps that's what Mark is meaning to do. How could we not share this wonderful, wonderful news? One who was crucified is risen. The one who died to bear our sin, to pay the debt we could never pay, to tear that curtain around the, the Holy of Holies is risen. There's forgiveness. There's a welcome into the presence of God, relationship with God that is now offered to all. Go tell, the angel says. Let me pray. Father, please, May we have a little more of the women's response in terms of that trembling, bewilderment. May we see more that it's a bigger truth we celebrate today than the one we too easily remember. A massive event, massive for each and every one of us, because the one who's raised is now appointed judge of all. 
pray for any here not yet sure of any of these things, please may they be goaded to, to look and see. Pray for them. Pray for all of us that you would help us more and more to understand more of who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. For his name's sake.